0: First Timothy. We're going to be in First Timothy chapter 6. We started a few weeks back a series on walking in peace. And our foundation scripture for the entire series is Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, where the Apostle Paul tells the church at Colossa that they are called to peace. But he encourages them to let peace rule and reign within them. And The greatest thing about that verse is that you and I, apparently, according to Scripture, have a choice as to whether we're going to be all torn up or not. We have a choice as to whether we're going to have stress and anxiety dominate our lives or not. We have a choice to walk in peace if we choose to walk in peace. But whether or not you and I live in peace highly determines is determined by how where we set our mind philippians chapter 4 verse 8 of course is the classic scripture where it says finally brethren whatsoever things are good whatsoever things are right whatsoever things are true whatsoever things are virtuous or praiseworthy if there's anything like that choose to meditate or think on these things the bible says as a man thinks in his heart so he is now our definition for peace is not an absence of conflict or trouble Jesus said, as long as you're in this world, you'll have tribulation or trouble. But he said, be of good cheer. That actually means be happy. Even if you've got trouble, be happy. Jesus said, yes. Even if you're dealing with trouble, because you're going to have it as long as you live. So let me just say something real quick. There is no level of faith on earth that you go to where you can avoid all trouble. Now you may say, but pastor so-and-so, I don't care what pastor so-and-so said. Jesus said, as long as you're in this world, you will have tribulation. So there is no place you're going to go, no level of faith, no level of anointing, no level of confession, no level of of power, no level of praise that you're going to get to that's going to cause your world to never be rocked by trouble of some sort. Jesus said you're going to have it, but he absolutely said you can be happy in the middle of it. And a lot of that is determined by whether we take our eyes off of Jesus and put it on to the trouble or whether we choose, no matter the trouble, to keep our eyes on Jesus. So peace is not an absence of conflict. Peace is an awareness and a confidence in the presence and the power of Christ in the middle of our problem. And we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks some very practical ways that we can live and walk in peace. And one very important way is to do what Scripture says and learn to be content. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. And just so he's sure that you don't miss the context of what he's talking about, in verse 7 he says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is a fact, it is certain, we can carry nothing out of it. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. If you want to walk in peace, you're going to have to know the difference between contentment and apathy and be content. Contentment very much has to deal with, as a matter of fact, if you wanted to look up a definition of contentment, it means to be free from care because of satisfaction with what one already has to be free from concern or free from anxiety or free from worry or fear or care because of a satisfaction internally with what one already has. Otherwise, you've come to the place where you can say, you know what? It's enough. It's enough. And actually, the Bible tells us, and in spite of what a lot of teachers teach, the Bible actually tells us when you have food and you have clothing, otherwise, when the necessities of your life are provided for. God says, "Be content." That's enough. Now that doesn't mean that you can't have anything more. It doesn't mean that you won't ever be blessed with anything more than just your necessities, but it means if you have your necessities, then if from that point, don't be afraid. Don't worry. Don't struggle. Don't stress. Jesus said this, and we quote the verse all the time. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things shall be added unto you. Well, the things that he's talking about, if you go up and you look at the context of that verse, he was saying don't worry about anything. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you'll wear, how you'll be clothed. And he uses illustrations about the birds of the air and the flowers out in the field. And he talks about how God takes care of the birds and God takes care of the flowers. And he said, if God takes care of the birds and the flowers, don't you realize that you as a human being, and particularly you and I who have come to faith in Christ as children of God, are much more valuable and significant to him than the birds and the flowers that are taken care of automatically. They don't have to labor with it. They don't have to worry about it. They don't have to struggle about it having enough. It's just provided for them. So God says, don't worry about it. Just instead, seek first. I don't mean at the top of a list. It means at the center of your being. Seek at the very core or the center of everything that you are and everything that you plan and everything that you think and everything that you do. Make that be the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then everything that you actually do need, he says, I'm going to take care of that. You can count on it. Now, he didn't, I've said this many times, he didn't promise everything that you greed. He promised everything that you need. He didn't promise everything that you want but he did promise everything that you need. Now, the truth is, if you live here in the United States, most of us have, let me just say this, how, how many of have ever traveled outside of the United States? Lift your hand, would you? Then you already know this. If you've ever traveled outside of the United States, especially if you've traveled into what's known as a third world country, you understand that everybody in this room is rich compared to probably 80% of most everybody else in the entire earth. You do realize, right now, already. You say, well, I've got a lot of bills. Yeah, I know, but, but you already have more than probably over 80% of people on the planet. How do I know that? Because you're not crawling over a garbage dump today to find some scrap that you can eat. Or more importantly, you're not sending your children to do that. You know, they do that in many countries. Not only that, but you're not living in a place where open sewage is flowing out in the streets right in front of your home. Do you know many countries, that's from the time they're born, that's all they've known. You, you may be struggling and you may feel bad today because you know, you're, you're trying to figure out how you're gonna pay this bill or that bill, but most of us will go home to a comfortable home where we can turn on the heat every time it's cold and we can turn on the air conditioning every time it's hot. You came here in a car that's reliable enough, it may not be the car you want, you, you may want a sports car, and it may not be, it may be the family wagon that you want to get rid of, but at the end of the day, you got here in a reliable car, you're going to go home in that reliable car, you're going to put gas in that reliable car, you may complain about the price of gas, but you're going to put gas in that car to get from point A to point B, you're not going to walk for miles to get where you need to go, and I'm told even in Mexico, there are many who walk for miles just to get to church. I, don't, I bet nobody walked here this morning unless you chose to. You're blessed. We don't know how blessed we are. Most of us in this room today will go home and sit down and watch the NCAA tournament at some point today on a big screen TV. If you're not a basketball fan, you you watch the Food Network or HGTV. If you're a basketball fan in my house, you will tape the NCAA tournament on the DVR and watch the ball game after your wife gets done watching Food Network and HGTV. So if I'm ever really sleepy in the morning, you probably know why. If Kentucky played, I was up late trying to catch up, you see. But just to have a TV, and most of us don't just have a TV. We've got one in every room of the house. Or, and not only that, I'm not even going to ask you to pull out your iPhones. See, we are very wealthy, very wealthy. We're extremely blessed in this nation. You see, most of us aren't even praying for our needs because they were met a long, long time ago. See, most of us have never in our life had a concern about a need being met. Oh, but I've got all kinds. No, no, no. Are you going to eat today? Do you have a roof over your head today? Are you able to get from point A to point B today? Do you have clothes on your back today? Your needs are met. And for most of us, our needs have been met. From the day we were born. We never really had to think about that. We're just thinking about how we're going to pay the bills for all the wants that we went and got. Not for our needs. That were met. Listen, please understand. I believe God wants to prosper you. I do believe God wants to bless you. I'm not upset if you've got five homes, ten cars, and 23 big screen TVs. As a matter of fact, that's too many. Why don't you give me one? But at the end of the day, I don't care what you have. The more, the better, as long as you're not in bondage, trying to keep things that you don't really need to the point that you never have a day without anxiety and fear in your life because you think you have to have what everybody else has when honestly you already have what you need. You see, we need contentment. Because you know what happens when we don't have contentment? There's never enough. Well, let me ask you something. Have you ever thought about this? What is enough? What is enough? What level of income will be enough? What kind of house will be enough? What kind of car will be enough? You know, what what in your life, whatever it is you're wanting, have you ever asked the question, when will enough be enough? When can I stop and say, thank you, God. I've got everything I need right here. Thank you, Jesus. That doesn't mean you can't go out and buy something new if you've got the money, but when will we come to a point where we say, Thank you, Lord. When is enough? Enough. See, contentment is that place in your heart where right now, wherever you are, you can say, you know what? God, you've been good to me. Thank you, Jesus. I've got enough. Enough. And God, you may bless me with all kinds of other things, and I'll be grateful for everything you bless me with, but I'm not going to worry about those things. I'm not going to stress over those things. I'm not going to be angry because I don't have those things. I'm not going to get frustrated because somebody else has those things. Thank you, God. I have enough today, right now. So I'm just going to keep my attention on you. That's contentment. And the Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain because you're not taking anything out of this world. i always heard all my life you never see a hearse with a U-Haul attached until one day I saw on Facebook a hearse that somebody had bought for themselves and they had a U-Haul attached. And somebody put a little statement and said, well, there goes that idea. But the idea is we're not taking anything out of here except our eternal souls and anybody else that you may have led to Christ. One day they'll join you. In eternity. So that really needs to be where our focus is. Anything else brings nothing but stress and anxiety and difficulty in our life. Now, I know that's a hard pill to swallow because our world is made. Everything from television to social media is made. And we talked about this earlier. It cause us to compare our lives with somebody else's. Somebody else is on vacation. Well, that's not fair. I didn't get to go on vacation. blah, 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 blah. blah, blah. Somebody else buys a new house. That's not fair. I've been living in this old house. Blah, 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 I work just as hard as they do. Matter of fact, I've been serving God longer than they have. Matter of fact, I bet you I pray more than they do. Matter of fact, I know a few things about their life that most people don't know. For goodness sakes, they don't deserve that. Oh, and you do? Well, sure I do. On whose standard? Well, I'm better than them. Are they the standard? Because you see, I promise you something, there's always somebody doing better than you. I don't care if you spent four hours praying today, I guarantee you somebody spent eight. Oh, I promise you they did. I don't care if you fasted over the last week, I guarantee you somebody's been fasting all month long. Well, I come to church all the time. I bet you there are people who come to church and then come to church when church ain't even going on just so they can be in church and spend some time praying. But I gave this, somebody gave more. But I use my talents for God. Somebody else is using their talents for God too, more than you are. That's not saying anything bad about what you're doing. My problem is if somebody else is your standard... Somebody else you're comparing your life with to say, I'm worthy and I'm deserving. See, we're messing our standard is Jesus and according to his standard, none of us are worthy and none of us deserve anything but eternity spent in hell separated from God and it's because of mercy and grace and forgiveness and the blood of Jesus Christ that you and I even can know eternal life within us and on those standards, thank God everything I have from every breath that I breathe to the ability to even say Jesus and him welcome me into his presence, is way more than I ever deserve. So you know what? I can be content. And the more content you and I are, the less we feel like we've got to meet false standards, and the more we begin to stop trying to meet somebody else's standards, the more peace we can live in. Celebrate other people's victories. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. If you want to have peace. Something else that's important in a practical sense if we want to live in peace. And I say this specifically to charismatic, non-denominational, Pentecostal, word of faith, whatever you want to call yourself. People, I identify with you. I am one of you. But I believe that we are probably the most prone to deception. Do you know why? Because we actually believe that the Holy Spirit still talks to people today. But can I tell you something? Everybody on TV and everybody in your world that tells you the Holy Spirit told them something, they may think He did, but the Holy Spirit didn't tell everybody everything that they think the Holy Spirit told them. And if you're going to walk in peace, you have to learn to walk in truth. You can have, listen, let me hear this. There is no peace apart from truth. There is no peace apart from truth. In 1 John chapter 4, if you want to turn over there with me and just see it in the scriptures. In 1 John chapter 4, we as believers are given a command by God. 1 John chapter 4. Looking at verse 1, says, Beloved, now, now again, make sure you understand this. Any t- all the letters, all the epistles are letters to the church. So they're written to Christians, not non-Christians. And especially when he uses this term, beloved, you can't get any more context and sincerity than that. He's talking to the bride of Christ. He's saying, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test or try the spirits whether they are of God. Why? Because many, not a few, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jesus' greatest warning about the end times, and we get sidetracked because we get all caught up in the dramatic stuff. Well, you know, it's the end times. Why? Because you know, we got all kinds of earthquakes and all kinds of epidemics and you know all the hurricanes and the tornadoes and all these, all these extreme cataclysmic things, the wars and the rumors of wars, and all of those things are signs. But actually, the thing Jesus talked about more than all of those things was false Christ, false prophets, false teachers. And deception. Matter of fact, he said that in the last days, deception was going to get so prevalent and be so strong that if possible, it would even deceive the very chosen and elect of God so he says here and it's a command to every Christian so here's the thing get this real quick you can't go out of a church or, or, or find one of your favorite televangelists or authors fell into some scandal or was teaching some type of false doctrine and say well that's awful you know because I believed that and how was I supposed to know any difference you know how because the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside every single one of us and we are commanded by God not to just swallow whatever somebody feeds us but to test the spirits and see if they're of God but I felt the anointing do you know what the Bible says the devil can do lying signs and wonders that means the devil can cause some goosebumps to run up and down your back too but everybody fell out well that don't mean God was there I've seen some people fall out and then look around to see if anybody was watching to see that they fell out I promise you God wasn't there I mean he was there in the room but he wasn't on that one Matter of fact, I watched a few look around before they ever fell just make sure that where they fell was going to be okay because they knew they were going to fall. And if I wasn't just to, either as nice a person as I am or concerned about lawsuits, I'd just tell the person behind them. Let them fall, see if they do that again. But I won't do that. <laughs> Don't worry, you can come onto the altar. I won't do that would be interesting, though, wouldn't it? But see, we get all caught up in these dramatic things. I've said this many times before. My pastor used to say that we are looking for the sensational, the spectacular, more than the supernatural. Do you know what? Every day you live in a world of miracles. You see, a miracle, by definition, is not just something that we can't explain or understand. A miracle is something we can't achieve on our own. Did you know that every time the sun rises in the morning, you've seen a miracle? Can you make that sun come up? Then it's a miracle. Every time the sun sets, you've seen a miracle. Can you make it go down? No, it's a miracle. Every time you see the rainbow in the clouds, do you know what you've seen? A miracle. Do you have the ability to start or stop the rain? Trust me, you don't, because every time it rains, I pray that it'll stop, and I haven't been able to stop it yet. And if I could stop it, we'd never have snow. Trust me, it don't work. If God God deems that it's going to snow, it's going to snow. So every time it snows and every time it rains, every time it stops snowing, every time it stops raining, do you know how many things have to go just right within your body for you to be breathing? And you can't do a thing about it. And yet there you are. Every breath is a miracle. Every heartbeat is a miracle. Every baby born is a miracle. You see miracles every day of your life. And some of you have been sitting there, I wish we could see miracles. I ain't seen a miracle in so many years. No, you haven't seen anything sensational that put goosebumps up and down your back. But there are miracles every day. The greatest miracle of all is that a sinner like me and you We're called by the Holy Spirit and birthed into the kingdom of God, and one day have an eternal home in heaven because there is not one solitary thing you could ever do to earn one bit of that salvation or forgiveness. But Jesus did it all for us. So we are living, breathing miracles. But we get caught up with the sensational, and when you get caught up with the sensational and you're enamored with the dramatic, you are prone to deception. You'll be the quickest to be deceived. You need to check everything. that Well, how do I try the spirits? Take them to the word of God. Do you know what that verse even means? That means that it doesn't say spirit. There's the Holy Spirit that inspires men and women of God to speak the word of God, including you when you're talking to your neighbors. But there are demonic spirits. The Bible calls them seducing and deceiving spirits that actually teach. How do you know that? Because the Bible says in the last days people are going to be caught up with the doctrine That means teachings of demons. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm just telling you the truth. There are teachings of demons. Well, they wouldn't be in the church. Well, where else do you think he wants to send them? He ain't worried about his own. Why do you think Jesus warns so much? Be careful about what you're listening to. Be careful about what you're believing. What does this have to do in peace? Because you see, there is no peace without truth. And if you give heed to a seducing spirit, if you give heed to a, to a false apostle or a false prophet, if you give your ear to someone who is teaching something that's not true, your life will be free. Filled with all kinds of stress and drama and anxiety. Why? Because they're promising things that God didn't promise. They're doing things that God didn't tell them to do. And when you step into that realm believing that lock, stock, and barrel, the only thing that can possibly happen to you is frustration. Constant and continual frustration. No peace. So if you want to walk in peace, you've got to know the truth. The Bible says we'll know the truth, and the truth will what? Set us free. So we need to try the spirits. We need to know that the attitudes that we have are attitudes that are pleasing to God. We need to know that our worldview, which is basically just what it sounds like, the way you view the world, that it agrees with the Word of God, that we're not getting our worldview from the nightly news. And we're not getting our worldview from somebody who taught us in college. And we're not getting our worldview from our neighbor. And we're not even getting our worldview from our parents and our grandparents, but we're getting our worldview from the word of God. God. That the way I see the world is the way God's word declares the world is. We need to know that the beliefs we hold and that we operate under line up with the word of God because there is a spirit in our culture. And I believe the Bible says it's the spirit of the age and I believe that particularly the spirit of our age and the way it tries to mess with the church is to bring division, to bring distraction Because, you see, the devil's not worried about you as long as all you can do is stay on your phone all day. But he gets quite concerned when you start praying. The devil's not at all concerned about you if all you're going to do is watch TV. But he gets, uh, and y'all forgive me, even if it's Christian TV, if all you're doing is watching. But he gets quite concerned when you dig into the Word of God for the purpose of being changed by it. And he gets petrified when you start doing what God's Word says, no matter how you feel. And so he loves to breed distraction. He loves to bring discontent into your life. He loves to bring division between you and other brothers and sisters in Christ. And he does that by jealousy and envy and sowing those seeds of comparison that the Bible tells us to stay away from. How do we avoid that? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says to study God's word. Study to show yourself approved. A workman that rightly divides the word of truth. Study. Dig into the word of God. Don't just let, hey listen, I am so glad you're here. I wish you would be here every time the doors are open. I love to teach and I love to preach and I always pray that what I'm preaching and teaching is sent by the Holy Spirit for you every single service, but do not count on me to feed you or any other pastor, preacher, teacher, evangelist, or author. We can be great supplements, but you've got to have your own walk with God. You need to dig into the Word of God. You, if you're not studying God's Word, how do you know I'm telling you the truth? What's the standard that you're comparing what I'm saying to? Well, Brother Lynn, I may just find out you're not telling me the truth. I might leave. Good, you should. If you find out I'm not telling you the truth from God's word, what in the world are you sitting here for? I'm telling you one thing. If I wasn't a pastor and I was sitting in a church and somebody wasn't telling me the truth, I guarantee you I'd be out quicker than you can say go. We need to try the spirits to see if they're of God because peace comes by knowing the truth and the truth is what sets us free. Let me give you another principle that helps you walk in peace. Keep a servant's heart. One of the greatest stories in scripture to me is when Jesus, right before his crucifixion, you got to know the context of it, it was just just before he was going to be crucified. He brings all of his disciples before him. They're in the upper room. They're getting ready to share their last meal together. And Jesus asks for water and a towel. And Jesus, the creator of all, the Lord of lords and the king of kings, their master, their teacher, does the unthinkable. He bends down and starts washing the feet of his disciples. Now, we think of it today, and quite frankly, I don't ever plan on having a foot washing here. And it's not because I believe it's wrong if you do it. It's just, uh, it's not commanded. It's something that you can do, but it's not commanded. And therefore, since it's not commanded... Unless God tells me to, we won't be doing that. But you know what? If we did, even if we did, it wouldn't be anything like what Jesus did. Do You see, all of you are wearing your shoes, and we all take our showers, and we're all in pretty decent shape. But you see, they had just been walking in a dusty, dirty road in sandals, sweating in an arid environment, and those were the feet that Jesus washed not only that, but if we had a foot washing service, we'd make a big deal about it. We'd have the big silver bowl. We'd be playing. I'd, Steve would get up here. I'd have him play, I don't know what kind of music would go with a foot washing, but I guarantee you he could find a song that would. And he, he'd play something that would go, and we'd all be just happy, and we'd all come in, and I guarantee you we'd barely touch the feet because we'd have a towel, and we'd, you know, we'd, we'd do it, boom, your gun, whoo, glory, and we'd have a great time, but that wasn't the way that was, see? Not at all. There was no music. There was no fanfare. And by the way, you see, we would celebrate that today, but in Jesus' day, that was the job reserved for the lowest household servant. We're not talking about just a household servant. You see, if Jesus just took the role of a household servant, period, that seems beneath him, right? But you see, foot washing was the lowest role for the lowest ranked servant in the house. Nobody wanted it, and you can understand why. And Jesus willfully took it. And Peter had a problem with it. You remember? He said, oh, no, Lord. You will never wash my feet. Listen. You're never going to see how dirty I could get. Hear me? No, I'm never going to show you just how filthy I You're never going to see my weakness. And Jesus makes an unbelievable statement. He said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have any part of what I'm doing. And then Peter as impulsive as he is. Well, Lord, just give me a bath. Hallelujah. Just, and I, I would have loved to be in the room because I think Jesus would have Peter, that's not necessary. <laughs> but that's just Peter. But why did he have such a reaction? Because of how beneath the king it was. Can I tell you something? Jesus already knows you're dirty anyway. Every single bit of it. He knows not just the things you've done. He knows the things you thought about doing that you didn't do yet. He don't just know the words you said. He knows the words you said in private so that you wouldn't have to maybe say it in public. And he knows every single one you said. He knows all the dirt. Now get this picture. The king who knows all your dirt is the king who puts on a towel and says, let me wash that away. That's Jesus. That's him. And then he looked at his disciples after all of this was done. I don't know that they were still thrilled with it, even though they were blessed to have Jesus wash theirs. Then he turned and said, now, what you've seen me do here today, I want you to do this for each other. Every day. All the time. Jesus even said this. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me. So what does that have to do with peace? See, if you're always looking for position, if you're always looking for power, if you're always looking for recognition, If you're always looking for fame, if you've always got to be on top, if you've always got to be first, if you've always got to be in charge, then you're never going to have peace because every time everything's not just like in your world you want it to be, you're going to struggle. You're going to have turmoil. But if you can arm yourself with the same mind and didn't Paul say this that we should have the same mind as Christ Jesus who knew it wasn't robbery to be equal with God Philippians chapter 2 but made himself made himself of no reputation Stripped himself of all that he had and put upon himself the form of the lowest slave and became obedient humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, which, by the way, in his day and time, was the most painful and humiliating death anybody could die, reserved from the lowest of criminals only. And that's how Jesus died, on purpose, by the way. He took the lowest place. And then God raised him up and gave him a name above every name. The name of Jesus. He had the name, but but every knee would bow, tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But have this same mind. The mind that humbles itself. The mind that becomes servant or slave. Let's just say it that way. Slave to all. That's what the word is. That literally, you know, well, don't don't say, I can't, that's the word. Slave. That's the biblical word. Jesus became slave to all. And then he looked at us and said, you do the same thing every one of you, become a slave to everybody. So he teaches this radical gospel. If someone strikes you on one cheek, what do you do? Turn the other to them. Let them strike you there as well. If someone demands that you walk a mile, offer to walk too. And we say, well, you know, that's okay. We'll just get some good exercise. Yeah, but you don't know the context. You see, under, their, under Roman rule and authority, if a Roman soldier didn't want to carry a heavy load since they were the occupying army in the country, they could come up on you and they'd say, Hey, I'm tired. You carry this load for me. You do it. Didn't matter how heavy it was. Didn't matter what your schedule was. Didn't matter what you were doing. You either obeyed them or you suffered the consequences, and you wouldn't want that. So you had to carry it. But here's the law. You only had to carry it one mile. Once you had carried it one mile, they couldn't make you carry it another. So what does Jesus say? If somebody compels you to carry a load one mile, offer to take it two. Peter makes the statement one day when Jesus talks about forgiveness. He says, well, how often should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Up to seven times. And the tradition of the day was that the most righteous would forgive up to seven times. And then after that, you could hold whatever grudge you wanted to. Talking about one person in a day. And Jesus says, no, I don't say to you up to seven times. And I imagine that Peter's breathing a sigh of relief thinking he's going to take the load off of him. Maybe he'll just be once or twice. He says, no, I'm telling you 70 times seven. That's in case you're not a mathematician and I'm not either. So I had to check it out. But that what they tell me is that's 490 times every day. Same person. That's the context. <laughs> So Jesus didn't say, hey, let me just make it easy for you. Jesus said, hey, I'm going to empower you to do the impossible. So my mindset, looking at what Jesus has taught, is I'm just I'm called to be a servant. But you know what? If you're called to be a servant, not a whole lot of reason to stress. I'm just always looking for whatever opportunity God put in front of me to serve. And you're going to say, well, Pastor Lynn, I'm so glad you got that attitude. I I, I just can't believe that you live so holy and righteous like that. Well, I'm not real good at it. Matter of fact, when somebody interrupts my schedule, my first reaction is, Bless the Lord, thank you for this opportunity. No, it's not. (sighs) God, I got so much to do. How am I going to get done what I got to do? You see my list. And God has to remind me what I'm here for. See, He didn't say it was going to be easy, but it is a lot less stressful. When you keep a servant's heart, if you realize everything centers around Jesus, not around you. <laughs> that goes against the grain for some charismatic teaching too, but it's important we understand. Everything centers around Jesus, not around you. It's amazing how much of our prayer time centers around, God, here's what you can do for me, instead of showing up and say, God, what is it that you want me to do? A servant's heart takes a lot of the stress out of things you know john the baptist said this when jesus came he had quite a following by the way multitudes came to be baptized by john the baptist in the wilderness but when jesus comes up he introduces him as the lamb of god that would take away the sins of the world and from that moment on a lot of people who were following him started following jesus instead so much so that his disciples get upset about it. it's like hey we're losing our following and they come and say hey john they're all following this jesus character now and he's he makes this unbelievable statement he says yeah That's what I came to do, to point people to him. That's what my life has been about. He said, I celebrate the fact that they're following him. And then he makes this awesome statement. I must decrease, and he must increase. Less of me, more of him. A servant's heart. God, I'm just here for your glory. I'm here to do what you've called me to. Jesus even tells this parable one time and he's talking to his disciples. He said, when you go to a feast, a banquet, don't go and just take one of the upper seats at the table, one of the more prominent seats. Because he said, if you do, there may be somebody more important than you come in the room. And the master of the house, and he'll come to you and he'll say, hey, we need you to move down. <laughs> he said, instead, when you go to a feast or a banquet, oh man, our pride doesn't like this. I can feel it in the room right now. Take the lowest seat at the table. Why? Because he said, wouldn't it be better for the master of the house to come to the end of the table and say, what are you doing down here? Come on up, I've got a better seat for you. The Bible says that if you'll lose your life for his sake and the sake of the kingdom, you'll gain true life. But if you try to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. It says that he who wants to be First should be last, but the one who goes after being first will become last. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, James said, and he will what, lift you up, a servant's heart. If you walk with a servant's heart, you'll walk with more peace because you're not trying to manipulate all the circumstances around your life so that they favor you. You see, if you're trying to manipulate all the circumstances of your life always so that they favor you, you're going to find out real quick that you can't control all of the circumstances in your life. Never have been able to, never going to be able to. Life is not like that. But if I just look at myself as God sees me, I've called you to serve. To give up your life for the sake of the kingdom. To be last. To humble yourself so that I can truly lift you up. If I'm not looking for the head seat at the table, but I'm willing to take the last seat, the lowest seat at the table. If I'm willing to be like Jesus was, because that's what Jesus did. He said, I give my life up as a sacrifice for all. Keep a servant's heart. Always remember that everything centers around Jesus And finally, always keep in mind what's truly important. Can I tell you something? And I'm not trying to make light of anything you're going through. Trust me, I go through stuff too. And when I go through stuff, it's the biggest thing in the world. I could tell some of you some of the things I go through and you might look at me and say, that's nothing. Well, it's something to me. Because I'm going through it. I'm just like you. But you know what? Most of the things that I stress over in the eternal sense of the word, they're not that significant. I didn't say they weren't important to me. I just said eternally, they're not that significant. Keep your eyes and always remember what is truly important. And if you want to know what's truly important, it's, it's Jesus. It's God's word in your life, what you believe. It's God's presence in your life. It's God's family that he's joined you to. It's God's world that he's put you in. It's God's temple that you are. And it's God's glory that you're promoting. That's what's important. God's word. What do you believe? What do you believe? Well, I grew up, my family, I didn't ask what your family believes. What do you believe? Do you know? Well, my church believes that's great, but do you know? What do you believe? Because you see, what you believe determines what you do and how you respond in stressful situations and circumstances. What do you believe? Do you know God's word? Is God's presence a daily part of your life? Well, I can't control that. Well, actually the Bible does say that when we are a people of praise, that God's presence inhabits, comes to live in the praises of his people. And in his presence, there's fullness of joy. You know, I quote this all the time. The joy of the Lord then becomes our strength. So God's presence is very important. If you feel like I don't have any strength, well, you could use some strength. So where does that come from? From the joy of the Lord. Where does the joy of the Lord come from? From his presence. Where does his presence come from? Or how do we uh, uh, welcome his presence in our life? By praise. By being a people of gratitude and a people of thanksgiving. And you can do that every day. That's important to your life. God's church, and listen, I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor. I've been in church all my life. In our family, we, <laughs> <if> you, <clears throat> my dad is the same as he's always been. If you get here to church, it don't matter how early you get here. I dare you, try to beat my dad to church. I don't even beat my dad to church, and I'm the pastor of the church. So you try to beat dad to church. And a lot of you think, well, that just must be something he does now. No, no, no. If you've known us, some of you knew us back when I was a teenager and going to church. I guarantee you, you know, we were at church at least half an hour before church started. And we stayed at least, now daddy don't do that as much, well he has to because I take him home, but, but now he might leave a little earlier now, but back in that day, we stayed at least half an hour after church started, or it was over. And let me tell you something about church and our family. You didn't get out of church unless you were so sick you couldn't hardly get up and walk. Now I don't necessarily condone that. If you're running a fever and you're sick and you're throwing up, please by all means stay home. Come back next week. Well, I believe God's a healer. I do too. Call me. We will pray for you in Jesus' name. (laughs) But that's the only way I couldn't get out of going to church. I've told you before I had to come down with the chicken pots before I could ever watch Wizard of Oz. I mean, for goodness sakes. And I had to throw a fit like you've never seen to watch Rudolph at Christmas time because back then you didn't have but three channels and it always came on Wednesday night. And it was church night. And at church night, they didn't care what was on TV. You were going to church. That's just the way it was. Homework? Well, that's your fault you didn't get your homework done in class or get your homework done before church started. You're just going to be staying up later tonight and getting your homework done because we're going to church. And that's the way it was. That's my legacy. And you know what? I'm glad that was my legacy. I don't regret a minute of it. And by the way, and I'm not against it, but we didn't know what kids' church was when I was in church. Nobody had invented that wonderful invention yet when I was in church. So mama brought coloring sheets and crayons, and I sat in the pew and listened to the preacher from the time I was four years old until the time I was an adult. That was just life because they didn't have anything else. That's just the way it was. So I'm not against kids' church, but understand, I I learned to grow up sitting in church listening to the preacher, and it didn't matter if he was at or if he wasn't at because if he wasn't at sighting, you decided to talk a little bit more. We had a little church with two rows of pews and an aisle down the middle, and mom would be glad to yank your hand up, walk you right out in front of everybody, take you out on the front porch, paddle your behind, except it wasn't a paddle, and then you'd come back in crying, begging everybody for relief, but they weren't going to relieve you because it might be their kid that's going to march out and get the same thing in the next few minutes, and that was life growing up for me. That was church. But you know what? I have no regrets. Because I grew up with this in mind. Church is actually important. Being in the house of God with the family of God is something that you do unless it's just, you just absolutely can't. Church is important. You know what? Church is still important. I'm not saying it's essential to your faith that you have to be in church every Sunday morning. But what I am saying is this. The family of God that God's placed you with is important. Remember that. God's world is important. God put you in this world for a reason. You are where you are for a reason. No, I'm not. I'm just here because either you are where you are on purpose or you made a mistake. Now, if you made a mistake and you got outside of the will of God, then pray and find out what God's will is and get in it. But otherwise, you are where you are For a reason. You're living in your neighborhood for a reason. You're working at your workplace for a reason. You're going to the school you're going to for a reason. You're even in the family you're in for a reason. And that reason is to bring glory to Jesus Christ and be a light in the world and salt in the earth. It's God's world. And the Bible says God's so loved. He doesn't hate. I bet God's disgusted and hates this world. You are wrong. He loves it. Now, he doesn't love the ideas in the world and he doesn't love all the governments in the world and he doesn't love a lot of things the world is doing but as far as the people goes God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever I don't care what they are, what they believe if they'll just believe in him and accept him he'll forgive them and give them eternal life God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved and it's our wonderful privilege To shine as lights in this world and be salt in this earth. You see, it's God's world. You need to remember why you're here. You're not here just to make a good living and have a good retirement and build a nice house and go on a few good vacations. Those things are fine, but that's not why you're here. And you see, if you think that's why you're here, you're going to be stressed out all the time trying to do all those things. But I tell you what, it don't take a whole lot of stress to go into the world that you're in and just be a light. And by the way, he just said you are a light. A light doesn't have to try to be light, it just is. Salt doesn't have to try to be salt. It just is. So just be what God's made you to be. Realize you're in a world on purpose. And you, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Always keep that in mind. Everything, see God designed this body that it could be used for his glory. So I need to do everything I can to be in mind that Jesus lives inside of me. The Holy Spirit abides within me 20 hours. See, he don't just stay in my, he's not just here when I'm at church. He follows me home. A lot of you would be amazed at what Jesus sits through. See, a lot of us have this mistaken idea that I, I, maybe, we've, maybe we've helped it along the line by some of the things we've taught and said, that we carry the Holy Spirit with us until we do something the Holy Spirit's uncomfortable with, and then the Holy Spirit just goes somewhere else for a little while and then comes back to stay, hey, I'm coming home. It don't work like that. Holy Spirit's with you all the time, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. All the time see, you might give up on you, and other people might give up on you, but God doesn't give up on you like that. See, he goes through all the nitty-gritty of your life. He sees every tear, he feels every heartbreak, and he sees every sin. you may sit there and say, well, God must not love me. Oh, yeah, he loves you so much. Why do you think you're here? Not just here, wherever you go. Why, why, why do you think that all of a sudden, instead of just giving up and saying, Oh, God can never love me, something's motivated you to come to church. Something motivated you to read God's word. Something motivated you, some specific song, some specific word, some specific... Why do you think that happened? God, who knew everything, was right there with you. In the darkest hour of your life, loves you so much that he doesn't turn his back on you. He says, Hey, if you'll let me, I'll bring you home. See, I'm not, I'm not leaving you. You're just trying to run from me. If you'll let me, I'll just, let's just hug that. Let's just, let's just bring you close. There's nothing my love can't cure. Remember that you're God's temple. And finally, and we'll close, if you want to walk a peace-filled life, remember that everything is for God's glory. Everything. Turn over to, this will be a good closing scripture. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I know you're familiar with this passage, but I want to close by reading this today. Verse 9, Peter says to the church, and that's you and me as children of God, but you are a chosen generation. You're hand-picked. hand-picked. God picked you out. I love that. For me, it doesn't get any better than that. I'm hand-picked. He chose me. He chose you. You are a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. The Bible says he's made us, he has made us kings and priests. We rule and we reign with him. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. People who are set apart for God's purpose. You're his Peculiar, that means his own special people. You're special to God. His own people. Why? Why are we all these? See, it doesn't say you're going to... Let me just say this real quick. Notice it doesn't say you will become all these things. It actually says you are all these things. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are his own special people, a holy nation. You are right now those things. But why are we all of that? Well, we're that because God made us all of that. But why did he make us all of that? There's a purpose. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. My mission, my purpose is to bring glory to God with everything I say and everything I do. Do you fail sometimes? Oh, absolutely. More than I want to count. But that's what makes it so miraculous and so wonderful when God, through me, works and we get it right. Those special moments when you're just wrecked in the presence of God. When out of nowhere you know that your heart is connected with God's heart and prays it's what I'm made for. Those precious moments when you've opened up the book and instead of the other 10, 20 days before you just read it, but today you read it and a verse of Scripture leapt off the pages at you, and it's just like, wow, that's the Word made alive. It's what you're made for. That very special moment when you're talking to somebody who's struggling, whether it's a Christian or a non-Christian in your world, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a scripture comes to your memory. Just the right verse or just the right word at just the right time, and you know that didn't come for you, but it came from God, and then you watch the response in somebody's life, and you realize, this is what I was made for. And you don't have to be in a five-fold ministry gift to do that. As a matter of fact, that's the biggest problem with the American church. We think that all of those great moments of ministry are reserved for apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and missionaries. No, no, no. Every child of God is a king and a priest. He called us all to do the work of an evangelist. Those special moments when just, you know, a year ago, a month ago, two years ago, if you would have been in this situation, this is what you would have done, but not today. Today. Bless God for the first time and you don't know when you had the strength to stand up and do what God called you to do. You know what that is? That's what you were made for. God didn't put you on this planet to watch you struggle. God put you on this planet to show the principalities and the powers just exactly who he is. Well, what makes you think that? God did. He said it in Ephesians. He said that God did everything he did with us so that through his church, through his body, he he could show his power to the prince of his wisdom, to the principalities and the powers of the world. You see, our life preaches a message not just to people around us. Your life preaches a message to demonic principalities in the atmosphere. Look what God has done. Not look what I have done. See, too many of us, it's look what I have done. Look what I have done. You say, well, I would never say that. Yeah, but I know you're saying that when you get upset when somebody else gets recognized and you don't. See, it must be about what you've done then. It's not look what I have done. It's look what Christ has done in me. You're preaching a message, not just to people, but to the atmosphere. A message that will spread across time and eternity. And bring glory to God. That's what you're here for. And if I realize that, then my goodness, a lot of things just don't seem to matter, do they? Things I was stressing about yesterday, are they really that important? Is that what I'm here for? No. Well, if that's not what I'm here for, then what does it matter? What I was laying awake, tossing and turning about the night before last, if, 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 is that about what I'm here for? No. Well, if it doesn't have anything to do with what I'm here for, then why am I stressing over it? God, I give this to you. You're the only one who can do anything about it anyway. Here's what I'm called to do. Here's what I'm called to be. So this is what I'm going to focus on. See, when I live my life that way, peace follows. But you've got to let that peace rule in your heart. And the only way we can do that is to live in the truth. There is no real peace apart from truth. So we've got to live our life according to God's word. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment, would you? Father, in the name of Jesus today, we're grateful for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we felt your presence, Lord, as we worshiped you in song today. Lord, we felt your presence here at the altar as prayers were prayed over people's lives. And Lord, now we feel your presence in the word. Lord, we agree with the apostle. We're not ashamed of this good news of Jesus. The word itself is the power of God to salvation, to complete and total wholeness and deliverance. To everyone who will believe it. And God, we choose to be those who will believe your word. Father God, I believe you called us. You said you have. You called us to live in peace. But we've got to let that peace rule and reign. It won't just happen automatically. We have to choose to set our mind on the things above, not on the things of the world. Because our life is hidden with Christ in God And then, if that's how we live our life, then Christ, who is our life, when He appears, You said we'd also appear with Him. And God, we look forward to that day. But God, until that day, You've called us to live in peace. It's our destiny. Father God, I just pray that anything that is holding people captive in their minds, in their emotions, in their spirits, in their heart, anything that's robbing them of their peace, God, I thank You. That Jesus, you yourself are the prince of peace. Peace lives and resides inside of you. You are peace for us. So God, we come against anxiety. We come against fear. We come against anger and hostility. We come against divisiveness. We come against unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment. Father, anything that would rob us of our peace, we come against false ideas, false teachings. God, we come against any inflation of our own significance, pride, we come against that in Jesus' name. And Father God, we ask you in the name of Jesus that in, you would replace, as we submit all of those things to you, that you would replace it with your perfect peace. Peace that passes all human understanding. The peace you've promised us. Your peace, Jesus. God, we welcome that tonight over every troubled heart and every troubled mind. We can live in peace. We can walk in peace. In Jesus' name.